Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Jennifer Smith, here with Stephanie Murray and Steve Cazella. Happy Thanksgiving, folks! Happy Thanksgiving, Jen! This year, we have many things to be thankful for, not as many things perhaps as usual, but we also have to be thankful for the fact that Bennett Jordan II has lived to see another day at the La Quinta. Surely that's something that all Americans can get behind and celebrate. You know, I'm particularly grateful that Bennett, who we made fun of early on this show, has become something of a fan favorite. We all know he's not going to win Tasha's heart, but it is just really fun to watch him rap the word Brie with the word degree on a group date. Um, yeah, what did you guys think of The Bachelorette last night? It's kind of like going by fast. It's going to come to an end soon, which I think is a real disappointment to all of our, our listeners. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, rest rest assured, listeners, two weeks after The Bachelorette wraps, The Bachelor starts up. Okay. So, I mean, right? it's a quick turnaround season. Do we know Steve who, is like, forget who it is the, or anything? Forget the listeners. I'm going to throw myself off a cliff. Okay, I don't know who that is, but that sounds... <laughs> They're going to have the first Black Bachelor, okay. and uh, we will see We will see how that goes. So, you know, as usual, The Bachelor, Bachelorette making uh, historic and genuine strides toward representation and a search for love. Yeah, but but Bennett Jordan II <laughs> rapping, we haven't like really unpacked that yet. <laughs> I feel like there's at least a segment's worth of material there. I wish we could play it without some sort of copyright infringement. Um, but, but sadly, you're just going to have to go watch the episode if you want to know what we're talking about. I'm frankly devastated that you didn't pull it up in front of you, Steve, to reenact it. I will say <laughs> that in the Battle of the Bens, the one who actually gets to go by Ben is so boring that I will absolutely be Team Bennett Jordan II just to take screen time away from him. But the cacophony of these men, I hesitate to say singing or doing slam poetry in front of Tasha actually made me miss the sort of awkward performance of all of the men standing in front of Claire and just spouting platitudes. And for the record, I hated that. <laughs> I swear this is going to end with like Bennett as a guest on the podcast to the extent that we've talked about him already. But I will say I think that being at the resort with not a lot to do has kind of turned the contestants towards a slightly more genuine quest for love. They are not in helicopters or uh, going to Cleveland, Ohio, or any of the other incredible dates that they usually get to go on. No they one finds ordering... love in Cleveland. <laughs> they are ordering room service and pretending the floor is lava for a date. And I think it's actually restoring some uh, some genuineness to the, to the, uh, the show. That warms my heart, Stephanie. And I think we should use that as an excuse to get out of this show as quickly as possible and into <laughs> politics, because there's actually, as always, a lot of Massachusetts stuff going on, particularly at the national level. We heard yesterday, for instance, that um, somebody who we didn't even mention in our long list of Massachusetts officials that could be going into the administration, we heard about someone completely different. Stephanie, what happened there? So John Kerry, the former Secretary of State and Senator from Massachusetts, was tapped to serve as the special presidential envoy on climate for Biden. And it's the first time the national security team will have a person who's just totally focused on climate. That's right. And I mean, it's not a total surprise, obviously. Uh, but everyone talking about John Kerry again is sort of giving me flashbacks. Someone joked the other day that this feels sort of like a 2004 John Kerry administration slate of cabinet picks, where it's not that there's a specific problem with any of them. But, you know, Janet Yellen has been uh, selected for Treasury Secretary. So we got to 
put the kibosh on Elizabeth Warren's speculation. What are your takes on kind of the overall balance of progressives versus moderates versus sort of established political figures in the cabinet pick so far? I've been kind of surprised at how little uh, arguing there's been about the Biden cabinet so far. You know, his choices aren't, uh, you know, big leaders on the progressive side of the party, but progressives, uh, you know, have expressed support for them. I think of Ron Klain, the incoming White House chief of staff. People were really pleased about him. Elizabeth Warren called Janet Yellen an outstanding choice. Um, John Kerry, too, more of a moderate Democrat, but somebody who's been out front on climate and that progressives were praising. So I wonder if we're going to get there where Joe Biden's going to pick somebody for his cabinet that really frustrates the the left wing of the party. But it seems like that hasn't happened yet. The only kind of noise that I've seen a little bit bouncing around social media has been that that in some ways the cabinet feels very traditional and that traditional is what led us to this moment that we're in. And I think there there may be something to that. You know, there may be something to, you know, what led us to the chaos of the last four years, what led us to all the chaos of the years even before that, that now seem like a distant and somewhat happy memory, but certainly didn't feel like that at the time. Um, you know, is what is there something about choosing figures that are that have been around for a long time and have been in other administrations, though, in other roles, will that lead to, to problems down the road? I mean, I, I don't necessarily agree with that take, but that is one that's been that's been bouncing out there a little bit. Yeah, I think there is actually something to that, Steve, with the thinking that the Trump administration has been and still has a few months of being a totally bonkers array of picks for people to be in charge of anything. I mean, never forget the first cabinet announcements when we sat there going, Ben Carson is going to be in charge of what now? Um, so, so sort of following these last four years, there's kind of this, this balancing act that I think a lot of people are doing, which is just being very relieved that this feels like a sort of traditional set of picks. And then also wondering you know, does this kind of feel like a reset back to right before the Obama years rather than a continuation from the end of the Obama years? Has there been a reversion to the norm? Or are we sort of 12 years ago now? And I think we we really don't know exactly how the, ne the next few years are going to play out in any number of ways. So it is kind of hard to say what the impacts will be. But um, certainly those are, I think, legitimate concerns that, that people are expressing. I mean, there is some reassurance, I think, that a lot of people feel that perhaps is overtaking what would otherwise be anxiety about some of the more centrist picks. You know, people on the left are also expressing just relief that this is somebody who is qualified. They know this specific policy area. They're competent. It's not Ben Carson leading HUD. It's not some like Reddit comment section troll leading the National Security Agency. You know, those those kinds of things. So I think there is there is something to that, too, that it's just there is a sense kind of a palpable sense of relief on the left as well. Uh, but of course, this does bring us to, as usual, the most important segment of any of these discussions, which is, are there any other Massachusetts names still in the running? Stephanie, what's going on with Marty Walsh? Uh, you know, we're still keeping our eye on him. Uh, Biden hasn't named his labor secretary yet. We know that Bernie Sanders wants the job. There are some labor leaders that are pushing Marty Walsh for it. Um, but an interesting tidbit from The Globe this week, uh, Walsh has already hired a press secretary for his mayoral campaign, which he has not announced yet. Uh, so we can't say definitively that he's running, but, you know, it's widely assumed that he is. Um, and he hired a new uh, communications person for City Hall as well. And so the reasoning there, Kevin Cullen's reasoning at The Globe, uh, that he's probably not going anywhere is that why would you hire these new people if you're going to head to Washington in a couple of weeks? So, uh 
maybe things will change. Maybe he will head down to the Biden administration. But um, I think it's just as likely or more likely, I should say, that he's going to stick around and run for a third term in 2021. There's been a lot of fawning tweets that he's made toward the Biden administration that, you know, kind of talk about working with the administration. And you could either interpret that as, you know, City Hall working with the Biden administration or Marty Walsh himself working in the Biden administration. Um, But I think it is perhaps, I don't know, we read too much into these things, but he's certainly putting it out there and um, at least helping to fuel speculation. I think we needed some new Marty Walsh, Joe Biden tweets. I feel like I've seen that picture of them eating ice cream or apple pie or whatever it is um, that Marty Walsh used to wish him a happy birthday like a million times. So some new tweets in the mix, not so bad. Jen just rolled her eyes so hard. I think she sprained them. Jen, did you have something you'd like to add? I, I just, it that picture makes me think of like, parents with their favorite picture of their child just from ages ago when they were at peak adorable status and now they're in like the awkward preteen stage so i just love that that marty walsh will constantly pull that one photo out <laughs> but on that note but on uh, that where note do we go from here? i guess we should ask ourselves the eternal question which is what are we doing here on this wednesday just before the thanksgiving holiday Well, we'll continue following Biden's cabinet decisions and their implications whenever those happen. But for now, we're going to turn to some interesting statewide elections data with Massink Polling Group Research Director and friend of the pod, Rich Parr. And then later in the show, we'll talk turkey and lots of other Thanksgiving foods that the Northeast apparently has opinions on. So ready to go? Let's go. Massachusetts supported President-elect Joe Biden in the 2020 election by a wide margin, but recently released voting data shows an interesting trend in some Massachusetts cities. Massing Polling Group Research Director and Vice Admiral of Voting Data Analysis, Rich Parr, is here to break down those patterns in detail. Rich, thanks for being here. Hi, happy Thanksgiving, almost. Yeah, same to you. So you noticed a shift in precinct by precinct voting trends here in Massachusetts between 2016 and 2020. So can you tell us kind of just what changed? Yeah, we saw this uh, at the town level and the unofficial results. But now that we have the precinct level, we can dig in even farther. Um, And what we were seeing initially was uh, that pretty much everywhere in the state shifted more towards Joe Biden compared to 2016, right? And that makes sense because Joe Biden won Massachusetts by somewhere between six and seven points more than Hillary Clinton won it. So you would figure that in most places he was going to do better. But the few places where he actually did worse, where Donald Trump did better in terms of his percentage of the votes cast in those places, were the cities, were gateway cities. It includes Boston, um, Fall River, New Bedford down on the South Coast, uh, Haverhill, Lawrence, and Lowell up in Merrimack, Worcester, Springfield, Holyoke. Um, You know, a lot of these are kind of gateway cities, and a lot of them, we noticed, at least at the city level, uh, have a pretty significant Latino population. And uh, that tracks with something that people have been seeing in the county level results nationally. Most states, in most states, we don't have the 351 cities and towns. You've got, you know, kind of county level data. The county level data is is showing this as well, that there is something going on with particularly Latino um, populations, uh, you know, to be clear, Donald Trump did not win these places, but he did better there, um, in some cases significantly better there uh, than than he did in 2016. And that's just uh, kind of a very interesting phenomenon that people are kind of puzzling over across the country. 
The other thing that the map showed, of course, was just that there was this basically blue explosion, you know, that just seems like it happened in Boston and went went out to the suburbs where um, not necessarily in terms of the shift, but just in terms of what Joe Biden won. I mean, he won just a huge, huge sort of radius around Boston. You know, there were a couple of places in Saugus and Linfield and just in that area um, where where Trump narrowly won. But other than that, I mean, it's a lar- it's a long way, particularly if you if you head west. It is a very long way to get to somewhere where where Joe Biden Joe Biden won. Um, any other takeaways in terms of just how the map looks different than than it did in 2016? Yeah, if you compare the 2016 map to the 2020 map, um, what you see is, you know, there's a there's in 2016, there was a pretty good kind of belt of red in the middle of the state in central Massachusetts, Worcester County. And that kind of extended, you know, west into lower Hamden County and extended east and then meets up with the, the south coast, the southeast. You know, Trump was winning towns. Uh, in the southeast, in the south coast, he was winning these towns in the middle of the state. He was even winning some stuff up kind of northeast of uh, of of Boston. You know, I'd say like maybe Merrimack Valley or Essex County up up along uh, the New Hampshire border. What you see in in 2020 is basically that Joe Biden won back a f- some of that. You know, it, the 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 reds are less uh, deep red, and in some cases they flipped over to blue. Um, I remember, Steve, after the 2016 election, we did sort of a red towns analysis. We did a red towns poll for WBUR because they wanted to understand you know, these towns in central mass that had voted for, for Trump. And it looks as like a lot of those red towns have flipped over to blue towns now in, in 2020. Uh, so you still see kind of the same basic contours of that we're used to in Massachusetts politics, which is to say bluest near Boston and radiating out. And then blue again out in the in Western Massachusetts and and kind of the northern part, you know, Hampshire and and Franklin counties, Hamden a little bit less so, but uh, the blue has kind of flooded into the red areas. I would say a little bit more so than it did in 2016. Can we talk a little bit, Rich, about the interaction with not just the shift, but also some of the other stuff we've been tracking, like turnout and mail-in voting? Um, In these cities that you're looking at that shifted either from Trump to Biden or in areas that kind of became increasingly more Trump, were we seeing any interesting dynamics in terms of turnout or if any of these cities had a higher percentage of early or mail-in voting? You know, if we're if we're looking at the entire run of the 2020 election, how are these dynamics interacting? Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't done a super deep dive and we don't have um, we just got the final early voting statistics on the town level. We do not have them on the, the precinct level. But what we know about early voting from the primary uh, that took place in September was that Democrats did it a lot more than Republicans. And it appears that that pattern, I think, holds in the general because the towns that used early voting the most are some of the most Democratic towns on this map. It's sort of the very well-off suburbs in uh, Metro West, you know, Lincoln, Sudbury, Acton, Concord, Lexington, et cetera. Uh, And then out where, closer to where I live near Northampton, you're looking at at, at sort of those towns in kind of Hampshire County that are that are um, pretty educated, pretty affluent. So there's a pretty pretty strong correlation, I think, between early voting and education levels in in the different towns. So you know, this is part of a, this is another part of the national story. So Donald Trump maybe did a little bit better in the cities, but Joe Biden. I think one of the stories of this election is going to be when we get all the final data back is how much better Democrats did in the suburbs and. 
early voting maybe has something to do with that um, uh, because it gave because these towns sort of took advantage of it, jumped on it and, and, and went out there and voted for Joe Biden in a big way. I mean, early voting was a huge success story here in Massachusetts. I believe in the final analysis, only 35 percent of the vote came in on Election Day in Massachusetts, which is a real sea change in how we vote in this state. It's really the first time we've done mail voting and, and people really took to it. So um, I suspect that it's going to sort of continue to be to be a thing. And I would say that it probably uh, was more used and maybe maybe benefited uh, the Democratic, uh, the, you know, the real Democratic strongholds in the suburbs that we're seeing on this map. Rich, do you expect these contours to hold like those towns up in Middlesex County or elsewhere that were red in 2016 turned blue? this time around and, you know, some people in cities edging towards Trump or the Republican candidate. Like, do you think this is a trend that's going to stick around or is it Trump specific? Well, I mean, there, there seems to be so much that's Trump specific. I mean, the you know, if we look at the polling error uh, kind of on the uh, on the national level, you know, there was a miss in 2016, 2018 when Trump wasn't on the ballot was actually pretty good. And then again, in 2020, there was a miss. So there's something going on there. He does seem to perhaps drive some turnout that comes out specifically for him that is different than when he is not on the ballot. So uh, at the same time, he also energized, I think, Democrats in a blue state like Massachusetts in a way that maybe a regular Republican doesn't energize people against. So there's a lot of kind of countervailing forces here. Um, I think one thing that's interesting with respect to the cities is that we know that another kind of Republican, Charlie Baker, did very well in the gateway cities when he ran for re-election in 2018. Uh, so he's sort of found a formula to, for success in the cities and has kind of broken the traditional way that Democrats win the, win the governor's office in Massachusetts, which is to say it used to be that you ran up big, big margins in the cities and sort of you know, kept your margins down, your, your losses down in the suburbs. Um, it'd be interesting to see if this kind of shifts any in going forward in gubernatorial or state level politics, this, this pattern of Democrats kind of gaining footholds in the suburbs a bit more uh, and maybe giving up something a little bit while still winning in the cities. And does that have any sort of consequences going forward? Um, so I don't know. I think we'll have to look look to the next the next uh, state level elections and see if this pattern kind of kind of does anything. Certainly gives a lot for the Mass GOP to think about. I mean, it was their losses, unlike, you know, what happened nationwide, were not spe just specific to Trump. You know, they also they've also lost a few more legislative seats. And just looking at the map at how far back the red has been pushed from Boston and just recognizing that most of the population lives in the part that's now blue, it, it can't be can't be comforting to the Mass GOP. And you, you've already seen some of the recriminations starting to fly in the media and on social media. But Rich, I have to ask, because this our next segment's going to focus on Thanksgiving food. What are your uh, Thanksgiving food plans? How are you going to celebrate? Well, we've, we've never uh, uh, made Thanksgiving before because we've always ever gone to my in-laws or to my parents. We alternate every year to sync up with the siblings of the two families. Uh, so this is kind of exciting. So last night I made cranberry sauce, um, which sometimes we have made and brought. I think we're doing Brussels sprouts. We're doing a chicken instead of a turkey just because the turkey seemed excessive and nobody in our house particularly <laughs> likes turkey. So that's that's pretty unusual, Rich. We did it. There's a whole survey about how how everybody likes turkey except for you. So we're going to talk about that and, and dunk on you all for the whole next segment. <laughs> I have noticed like an underlying skepticism about turkey from plenty of people. 
where they're like, we do turkey because it's Thanksgiving, but if you were to present me with a roast turkey on any other day of the year, who's eating that? Sorry, right, I'm not that, was, that. It's a that huge was an aside. It's a hunk of meat. Yeah, no, you're right. No, I, I think that that's Don't right. come for Rich Sorry, on Rich. a reasonable, <laughs> reasonable opinion. Um, and we should also mention, uh, Rich, of course, Molly, your wife, is a food blogger. So we're especially interested in any particularly unusual culinary things happening in your household. Oh, yeah. she's Yesterday, she roasted two pumpkins that had been sitting on the counter since Halloween, I want to say. And she's going to turn that into pumpkin pie. But the pumpkin pie, I think, is going to have some Mediterranean spices in it. So we'll have to report back and see how that worked out. A little funky. Everyone's just stunned right now, just staring at the Zoom. I was. I would normally say, all right, everyone go over to Rich's house, except it's a pandemic. Everyone stay home and think about Rich's pies. <laughs> yeah, we need a live stream into the Rich Parr test kitchen on Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> all right, well, Rich Parr, Vice Admiral of Voting Mapping or whatever it was that we made Rich the Vice Admiral of. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Happy Thanksgiving, you guys. And now to send you into your holiday weekend in style, we have not one, but two Thanksgiving-related surveys to discuss, one from the data firm Dynata, looking at who plans to gather and with how many people, and the other from YouGov on what foods people prefer to eat for Thanksgiving. Um, But before we look at what everybody around the Northeast and across the country is saying and doing, Jen and Stephanie, what are you each doing for your Thanksgiving holiday? Well, what I did was very carefully look at the planned flight schedules and when everyone was planning their sort of exodus for the holidays and therefore putting everyone in the universe at risk. And I have decided to spend the entirety of my school term in Utah remotely with my mother. So my household now consists of my mother and my boyfriend, and we will be having... I assume swordfish was the plan, actually, for Thanksgiving, and then going absolutely nowhere for multiple months. So that's the plan. Swordfish, the traditional Utah Thanksgiving delicacy, of course. It's it's the traditional pescatarian delicacy. We oh, accommodate okay. this household. All right. <laughs> what about you, Stephanie? You know, you learn something new every day. <laughs> I am going to my parents' house. They live nearby, and that's who I've kind of, like, quarantine potted with through the whole pandemic very cool just hang out with my parents all the time so going there uh there will be four of us and we are getting at least three pies maybe four so we will be we will be up on the pies nice and for us i think uh you know weeks and months ago we were still sort of hoping we'd be able to travel but of course as the cases have spiked and the cdc put out new guidance we are also now staying home and just celebrating with the family um but we are making a turkey. We have a gigantic turkey that's going to produce enough feed food to get us from here to Christmas. I don't really know why, but that that's what we're doing. So, um, but speaking of travel plans, there was a survey put out with a hundred with about one hundred and fifty thousand respondents from the the firm Dynata that do, that has these giant databases of people that they can get to take surveys. It actually lets you drill down pretty far in terms of what people are doing for Thanksgiving. So we can look both at the national level and then down to the level of Massachusetts. Massachusetts and just see kind of what people are doing. Um, Overall, the majority of people are doing what we're doing and just staying home, not celebrating with anybody. Um, But there are differences by party with Democrats particularly less likely with just 22 percent saying they're planning to gather with people outside their household compared to 34 percent of Republicans. Um, And actually, the two highest are uh, the Green Party and Libertarians. Not a lot of those. So that's not a huge number of people. But if you're in the Green Party or a Libertarian, apparently you're getting together. 
Yeah, the map was really interesting. I, I mean, I love it every time the New York Times does one of the deep dive, zoom in, zoom out maps, because I immediately went to find out where everyone I lived was. Uh, and so the Massachusetts regions, where there was a high expectation that you'll eat Thanksgiving dinner with someone outside your household, was highest in South Yarmouth and North Reading, where those were both 40%. But most of the state was kind of in the 20s, 20% range. Boston, sort of all areas of Boston, was in the mid 25%, 26% area. So the thing that's interesting about the map to me is that when you're looking at kind of a scale from very light yellow to kind of very deep orange, you think, oh, there are some places where almost no one is gathering with family. But what we're looking at here is, you know, even in pretty blue areas, one in four people are planning on gathering with uh, people outside their household. So that was kind of striking to me as you wouldn't expect quite that number of of sort of mixed dinner plans. I also found it kind of interesting that Massachusetts is more likely to gather people in Massachusetts, I should say, are planning on gathering more than other New England and Northeastern states like Rhode Island, Vermont, Connecticut, all have a, a fewer percentage of people who plan to gather with people outside their household. And then we are just a little bit less than New Hampshire. They're a few more people plan to gather, but not by much. And one of the regions that I was really looking at is is the Cape, actually, which is seeing really bad instances of COVID right now. There have been a few news stories, particularly about how hard it's getting hit. And they're one of the regions with the, the highest percentages in Massachusetts of gathering plans, where most of the Cape is pretty much high 30% planning to gather. So uh, that's always interesting. Steve, what do you think, looking at the map? Yeah, I mean, we'll see in a couple weeks. It, you know, this is... Uh, could be one of those things where this is the how it started and then two weeks is how it's going and we're looking at like a COVID case map and if it in any way overlaps with something like this then that would just be distressing on so many different levels. I mean you hit it on the head Jen when you said one in four is still a lot of people. That's a lot of people that are still planning to gather. You know we can be happy in some ways that you know the Boston area is lower. You know perhaps that is a lesson that we've learned or that we're listening to the guidance more but it's still a whole heck of a lot of people that are that are planning to gather even in the face of you know so many different uh, public health bits of guidance um, we see it in some ways also in the in the lines for testing I drove by the square one mall over in Saugus yesterday and there was a four hour wait for testing that's one of the free testing sites it was you know sort of mid-afternoon and they'd already stopped like put a cop car at the end of the line because you couldn't even get in line anymore at that point because even though it didn't close until seven you wouldn't get into the front of the line before before the testing was over so it's both people that are already you know trying to test because they're feeling sick now i assume and also people trying to still travel for thanksgiving even though all the guidance has said a test is not a get out of jail free ticket so we've talked a lot about Thanksgiving plans for where people are going to be, but we have to talk about the most important thing, which is what people are going to eat. Uh, Steve, you dug up this interesting survey about, you know, different Thanksgiving food popularity or across the country. What stuck out to you? That's right. So this was a nationwide survey by YouGov and broken out by region. And basically what they did was they 
did a competition where it was like, if you could choose food A or food B, which one would you pick? And then ranked them based on how many of these matchups each food won and broke that out both uh, nationwide and then by region. So the number one food, which we just talked about with Rich, is turkey. That won the most matchups, followed um, by mashed potatoes and then stuffing. Those were the top three nationwide. Uh, But they also then broke it out by region. And here in the Northeast, turkey, uh, mashed potatoes, then scalloped potatoes, bread, and fruit salad were the top five, which um, perhaps it's because I'm not originally from the Northeast, but fruit salad. What's going on with fruit salad? Stephanie, as the only native Northeasterner (laughs) Right, we're looking at you. (laughs) Explain the fruit. I don't know. I don't have any fruit salad at my Thanksgiving. Um, I found it kind of weird that bread and rolls was the least popular in the Northeast region compared to other parts of the country. I don't know what you people have a problem with, my fellow New Englanders, with bread and rolls, but I'm pivoting because I don't really know what to say about this fruit salad. What I loved, too, was just the fact that there apparently are tons of tables where they're like, one potato dish, not enough. We need the mashed potatoes. We need the scallop potatoes. And then a little further down, we also have sweet potatoes or yams, so maybe and this is my theory, very hot take, is the fruit salad people also have three potato dishes on their table and they're like, this is a little bit much. Maybe we need a bit of variety. And that's what they're going with because you know what we don't eat is salad, apparently. My my typical Thanksgiving has three potato dishes, I have to say. It's like two different sweet potato dishes and then the mashed potatoes. So, I, you know, I you read yeah. me like a book, Jen. You figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanksgiving is basically the excuse to put as much starch on the table as your table can physically hold before it just collapses in a heap. Uh, But the things, just to quickly uh, summarize, the things that the Northeast eats more of than other places in the country are fruit salad, beans and rice, rice, um, broccoli, soup, mixed vegetables, and salad. We actually eat a little bit more salad, even though nobody eats that much salad for, for Thanksgiving. Steve, the Midwesterner, you want to talk about the uh, jello that y'all eat more than everyone Just else. Listen to this list: deviled eggs, chicken, mashed potatoes. That's fine, and Jello. Midwest, explain yourself. I, you know, I don't really know what to make of that. Maybe it's because they make the Midwest go all the way over to North Dakota. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Maybe they eat a lot of Jello over there. I don't think I've ever eaten Jello for Thanksgiving. But see, as the native Westerner, I am particularly proud of our list because the thing that we eat more than everyone else, apparently, not surprising, is tamales. And I love tamales. I had those last week. They're great. Everyone in the Northeast has terrible Mexican food. (laughs) See, I could get behind that. I could get behind eating tamales for Thanksgiving much more than I could either eating salad, which don't get me wrong, I love salad, but why at Thanksgiving? Or eating fruit salad, which again, it's like you have all the starch (laughs) on the table. Why waste the space in your stomach on fruit when you eat fruit every other day of the year? I think we've got to hand it to the southern region of the country for the best Thanksgiving foods. We've got turnips and turnip greens. Stuffing or dressing, which is the best Thanksgiving food. Mac and cheese, collard greens, and broccoli casserole. Those all sound delicious. Absolutely. And we should wrap this up with the things that people really don't want to eat, which we actually pretty much have in common, um, which is here in the Northeast, we do not want to eat tofu, black-eyed peas. Um, We don't want to eat tamales, apparently. That's one of our least favorite things. Um, Get out of here. (laughs) And also turnip greens and collard greens. So the things that people eat in the South, I guess, we're we're considerably less likely to eat. So terrible taste. We're judging all of you. We're looking at you sternly. 
and ordering you to, I don't know, improve your Thanksgiving taste somehow. Yeah, with one day notice. Jello, we should do like, you know, just the, the, the weirdest thing from each region and have like a get together dinner where we all eat, you know, Jello and fruit salad and, you know, the weird things. should. Be I feel region. nauseated <laughs> by that very concept. This is terrible. I don't think any listener wants to like listen to us eat a fruit salad and a Jello <laughs> combo and go, yeah, you're right. This is a terrible this Thanksgiving. This is a bad idea. They were I feel right. Like that's a thing. Fruit salad in Jello. I feel like that's kind of. Oh, a yeah, thing. definitely. Like Jello oh, molds yeah. where you like put it so it's like floating. Yeah. <laughs> encased in like a jiggling this is mass a descent into madness <laughs> we're punchy we should probably get to trivia since we know that's the only reason people are still listening at this point <laughs> that's right so last week we asked you which massachusetts member of congress was arrested at a willie nelson concert in the 1970s many horse race trivia points are up for grabs and we see you people questioning the validity and legitimacy of these trivia points in the broader trivia marketplace they are valuable and you don't know they aren't until you try and redeem them for something anyway what was the answer who got arrested the answer is Congressman Steve Lynch, and we had quite a few people get this one right. Uh, they promised me and swore to me that they did not go searching on Wikipedia for the answer, so they must have just known. Uh, but Jesse Hahn, a fellow podcaster of the Cod Cabin, Ari Offsevit, uh, Mark Frankel from the Teenage Republicans of Massachusetts, they all guessed Lynch. Is there anybody else I left off that got the right answer? And also Ben Tag, a first time, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, a first time um, trivia participant also got that right. So um, it feels like there's more to that story, which we should at some point do an oral history of. But for now, we'll just leave it to your imagination. <laughs> and speaking of Thanksgiving foods that we are judging people for, uh, that intro doesn't really work for this question, but I'm saying it anyways. Our trivia question for this week is, when was the first time the word turkey was recorded as an insult? That's a good one. As in you turkeys are all eating fruit salad at your Thanksgiving table. Get out of here. A bunch of turkeys. That kind of thing. Uh, but anyway, that is uh, much to the relief of our the several listeners that are still with us all the time we have for this week. I'm Steve Cazella here with Jennifer Smith and Stephanie Murray. Our producer is Libby Gormley. Make sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, both because it helps others find us and boosts our fragile egos. Plus, sign up for the Politico Massachusetts Playbook if you're not already subscribed and call the Massing Polling Group if you need polls done. But for now, thank you all so much for listening. We wish you a very happy Thanksgiving and we'll see you next week.